All right, brothers and sisters, we are uh, continuing on in our study of Micah. We are, we are on the approach. We are coming in. We have a begun initial descent, so to speak, to the conclusion of this book. And we're going to read today a fairly lengthy section, but it's going to bring a lot of points together. So we begin at Micah chapter 6, verse 9, and we're going to continue through chapter 7, verse 17. Micah, the Lord's servant, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes thus. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your, of your mouth. From her who lies in your arms, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. 
I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of her deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff and the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come into your presence this morning thankful. We rejoice in the fact that we have the hope of your presence, the hope of your vindication, even in the midst of difficult times. And I pray, O oh God, that you'd be with us now. For Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we began last week, with chapter 6, verse 1, uh, we said that we are now in the third and final oracle in Micah's book. And this third and final oracle goes from the beginning of chapter 6 through the end of chapter 7, really through the end here with the last four verses of Micah being kind of a summary postscript thought, a PS um, at the end. And uh, we saw last week that this this oracle takes the form of, of a legal court case, of a trial, so to speak, and how uh, I said at the beginning of that sermon, you need to be super careful because uh, there are fast talkers out there who will try to tell you that, that the penal substitutionary atonement is anachronistic and not true, and, and, and that's, that's absolute bunk. The fact of the matter is, is legal ease and courtroom scenarios are prevalent in the Bible as in here. But last week, you know, wouldn't you know it, as sometimes happens, I have so much here on my, on my screen, and I, you know, I scroll through my pages like that, uh, sometimes I, I forget something, I overlook something. And there was an important point that I wanted to say, and I didn't. And, uh, and then sure enough, I, I'm telling a few people of this point, and like a few hours later, 
I get on Facebook. Well, let me tell you the point. The point, if you look back from last week at chapter 6, verse, verse 8, uh, what is the, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Okay, there are some people who mistakenly think that what he's doing here is outlining the way of salvation. Do this and be saved. It's not. Verse, verse 8 is the required response for people who have experienced verses 3 through 5. In other words, verse 7 and 8 is the, or I'm sorry, 8 is the required response for people who have received the grace of the Lord. Okay? But I said, you know, what, what I forgot to point out was that some people will say that verse 8 is like the way of salvation. And sure enough, a few hours later, it's like my phone was listening to me. I I opened up Facebook, and the absolute first thing on my feed was this video advertisement for some Catholic app. And, and it had, you know, had the words. I wasn't going to listen to it, but, but how, do I, how can I be saved? And, of course, for this app, they've picked the most strapping, handsome Catholic priest they could find. Um, and it's easy it, or it's simple, love God and love people. The prophet Micah faced that dilemma, and this is what the Lord told him. And so it's easy to be saved. Just do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That's easy, actually. And I was like ready to pull my hair out because that's absolutely wrong. And that, that, that stupid response isn't even consistent with the doctrine of his own church. But whatever. But here's the, the wondrous double-edged nature. And I, when I say wondrous, I don't mean, I mean, it, it's a spectacle that should inspire awe. How God communicates things in his word. That verse 8 is such, and passages like it are such that if you approach it as law, it is death to you. Love justice and mercy and walk humbly with your God. Do you understand the nth degree you have to do those things to inherit the kingdom of God if you're going to approach that passage as law? We're not talking generally speaking more or less. It's absolute perfection. But if you approach it, if you approach it as from the vantage point of a response of a person who has been born again by God's grace, you see that God takes even the failings of his children and showers them with his blessing and he receives them as the well-intentioned efforts they are and he blesses for it. So there's life if you approach this command through the lens first of gospel. And God is like that. Here, in today's passage, then, we're at a point that begins and ends with the fear of the Lord. And in verse 9 of chapter 6, it's 
sound wisdom to fear your name and then look forward to chapter seven, to 717, the end result of what the Lord is that they shall be in fear of the Lord. So be, the concept of the fear of the Lord begins and ends this passage. And everything in between is what it looks like, actually until verse 7 at least of chapter 7, is what it looks like when a society and a world does not. It's chaos. It's unsafe. It's fearful. Now this passage breaks into three sections, what we read today. There's chapter 6, verse 9 to 16. There's chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. And there's chapter 7, verses 7 to the end. But essentially, the first two sections combine to, to paint us a picture of a world of hardship. And it's the matrix in which we find ourselves. When, when we were reading these verses, it's easy to think of, of the evildoers that's, that are being addressed. But you have to remember that there's the experience of the righteous and the oppressed who are going to have to experience the things that are being talked about because they're part of that cultural milieu. For example, fast forward 120 years from this. The young man, a teen, possibly, possibly right at the point of, of puberty, Daniel gets hauled away. He bears the he bears this. But he wasn't part of the problem, so to speak. And, and, and that's the case for, for all of us. We're in a world, and we're going to experience hardship in this world, and it may or may not be because of our direct involvement with sin and rebellion, but nonetheless, we are there and we experience it. And as we experience this world, it's important to keep in mind the words of verse 9. It is sound wisdom to fear your name. I keep reflecting on the fear of the Lord and, and how that, that is such a concept that is so hard for us to understand and to grasp, to even accept how how preachers, how, how we, we do gymnastics to tell you that fear doesn't mean fear. That fear means reverential awe. Oh, okay, but at the end of the day, you got to keep two things in mind. You're this frail, fragile creature that didn't have to be and could not be, and there's this God who's a consuming fire. you got to know your place. That's the essence of, of the fear of the Lord, is knowing one's place, okay? And there's sound wisdom in this. The sound wisdom is in knowing that I'm going to give an account, and there's, and there's, no, there's no overlooked offense. And, and you see that here in these words from the rest of chapter 6, where the Lord has been paying attention, and that confronts a myth that is common in our culture. I, I recently saw, in the span of one week, I saw two different movies. And one, one of them was, was uh, Thor, Love, and Thunder, which I thought was abysmal. 
But the basic motivation of the, the villain is that he wants to kill all of the gods because all of the gods are indifferent, self-absorbed, and don't deserve to be worshipped. And I watched another movie where the gods are presented as being absolutely indifferent to human uh, affairs, what's going on, aloof. They don't care. It's not the movies and their messaging that in intrigued me. It it's that these movies are revealing something about the story writers. They're revealing something about the people from within our context. So let's take it out of there. They think that God is distant, aloof, he's not aware, or he doesn't care about all the injustice, all the offenses, everything. And so there's the, there's the, there's the aggrieved who think that God is not cognizant of their suffering, and there's the exploiters who think that they're able to get away with impunity. And this chapter exposes that as untrue. Our God is the God who sees, who hears, who knows, who's aware. He's in the marketplaces. He sees the dishonest scales when they put the, the, the weight that's on the one side of the scale. It says a pound, but it's really not, and so they get less, less, less a grain for their money. He sees the dishonesty. He sees the corruptions. He sees the bribery. He sees it all. And the day is coming, the day of judgment. And, and that's a day that we, even if we're not even a part of it, it's the day that we have to sit through. It's something we have to see. We have to see all this going on, and it grieves our souls to see. And then we have to sit through it when it comes. And, and the Lord here in verses uh, 13 through 16 pronounces sentence. And this sentence comes in the form of, of a judgment that is not what we normally think of. We normally think of God's judgment as being, I don't know, this, this meteor that comes and just obliterates the village. Uh, a volcano that just engulfs or an earthquake that swallows up. Sometimes we'll recognize that it's the human army of a foreign power that comes in and does horrible things. But here he's talking about the form of judgment that comes through the experience of futility. Many of us have experienced the acute sensation of futility. You, you work hard and you bring home money. You know you, you know you get paid, but in short order you have no money. And, you're, and, and you don't even, you look around and you're like, what, what do I have to show for this money? And I, I don't, my account's not going up and nothing, no, nothing is changing. And here he talks about treading wine but, or, treading gra or planting grapes but not able to tread wine. And so he's using the language of, a, of an agrarian culture. But let's put it in a language of cultural futility that perhaps we can understand, you know, Maybe it's supply chain problems where there's a breakdown at some other level. Maybe it's, maybe it's labor disputes that cause just things to come to a grinding halt and, and stuff can't happen. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, 
inflation, eating away at your savings. Maybe it's, maybe it's having the largest diplomatic corps in the world and being unable to exert influence. Maybe it's having the mightiest military the human planet has, planet's ever seen and still not able to win wars decisively. Culturally, that's what it looks like. And personally, it's what it looks like when we, we put all of our time and energy into the accumulation of something and just, it just doesn't pan out. Futility. And we have to sit through it as our culture experiences this, this form of judgment. And Ben, how can you say that's judgment? That's just, that's just problems. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. From verse 9. Hear of the rod. That is, that is the means, the instrument of discipline. And I am so grateful he says rod. Because a rod is something you spank with. It's not something you kill with. The Lord is disciplining his people. He's chastising them. Hear of the rod. This is the punishment. This is the discipline. And of him who appointed it. We are called, brothers and sisters, to have a God-centered view of all things. I spent most of my Christian life surrounded by Christians who wanted to minimize God's involvement in the affairs of life. So, so, uh, so averse were they to the, to the nonsense of, of some on, in one segment of the Christian world that wants to see everything as, as a sign of surefire judgment. I spent most of my life being around Christians and repeating the idea that, oh, things just happen. I mean, it's in God's good providence, but there's, 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 there's no message to be had. It just happens. Stuff just happens. And we're called to have a God-centered view of the struggles and difficulties that are going on around us to see that this is a world. This is a society. Mine is a life contaminated and, by sin. And, and God's word is clear. There is only one there's only one legitimate outcome that I can rightfully expect, and that is judgment, judgment, judgment. And so, we're not called to superstition. We're not called to see that when there's lightning in the sky, that it's, that it's you know, the father playing catch with the son, or, the, or God, God fighting Satan. We're not called to see that when it rains that it's the angels crying. No, none of that nonsense. But we are called to have a theological perspective of all things that, that doesn't just take and dismiss the, the stuff that happens in our lives with spiritual indifference. I was reminded of, of this this week when Hurricane Ian swept through Florida and you know, it's not to say that this is God's judgment upon Florida. That's not it at all. But I think that we would be wise to interpret and to see this kind of cataclysmic event as evidence of God's wrath against sin and, and the promise of judgment. And so our attitude should be kind of like the, the old uh, Anglican... Uh, divines who wrote the 1662 Book of Common Prayer that our Puritan forefathers hated. But, but listen to this. This was, a, this was a prayer to God 
in the face of bad weather because the British were seafaring people. And so bad weather at sea uh, and affected them tremendously. But this is the God-centered perspective that we should have when we see something. Oh, almighty Lord God, who for the sin of man didst once drown all the world except eight persons, and afterward of thy great mercy didst promise never to destroy it so again, we humbly beseech thee that although we for our iniquities have worthily deserved a plague of rain and waters, Yet upon our true repentance thou wilt send us such weather as that we may receive the fruits of the earth in due season and learn both by thy punishment to amend our lives and for thy clemency to give thee praise and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Do you see how a perspective that is sensitive to the things of God looks at these natural phenomenon? through a lens that sees them as, as a sign of the worseness that could have been and the mercy of God that is to keep it from being all that it could have been. We are called to see in the midst of a society engulfed in evil the hand and the signs of God's judgment and, and appeal to those in our, in our day to repent, to turn. For indeed, the prophet speaks of things yet to come. A hundred years in the future. And so we should see that it is a great mercy, a great grace of God to make known the pending judgment that they might repent. That is a great mercy. And so we should, we should follow in our Father's footsteps and in the warning extend the, the promise of grace for repentance. But then there's not only the hardship around, there's the absolute despondency that's within when we see that when it feels like there's no one left and we get a glimpse of Micah's life where it's just his, the world that he experiences is one of danger, of, is one of treachery where he says you gotta guard your lips even from, even from your wife because everybody is turning on everybody. Everybody is self-absorbed and self-seeking. There is nothing sacred. Wow, what an unsafe place to be. And we can definitely lose heart in the face of all of this. It's not that we're one of the treacherous. It's not that we're one of those who is, who is dangerous. And, but we're in a world and we're in a context where the righteous are going to experience the treachery of others. They're going to experience the betrayal of others. And they're going to go through it. And is the response to lose heart? Is the response to say, oh God, you've proven yourself, you've let me down, Lord? No. No. The hinge verse of this entire passage is verse 7 of chapter 7. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I will bear, in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Now stop there. Micah is not saying that he is one of the people who've been defrauding people and committing idolatry. He's not saying that. But he's recognizing that he is a a sinner too. 
and that the wages of any and every sin is death. So even though I might not have committed or engaged in the big egregious sins that I've been talking about, I'm a sinner too, and God's standard is perfection. And so when he does something, and I experience the hardship of it, I'm not being treated unfairly. I'm only getting what any sinner truly deserves. But I have relationship with my God. He is my father, and so I wait for his vindication. And that's just it. As we await our vindication from the Lord in a world that is full of hardship, we say with Micah, I will look to the Lord and wait on, the, on God for my salvation. He will hear me. The confidence there. And this is an echo of what is said by Habakkuk in chapter 3 of that book after he hears of what is coming. And Habakkuk says, he confesses this great confession. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fields, and the yields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Micah and Habakkuk, they're on the same page. They're seeing the same wavelength. Why is that? Because they are trusting in the Lord. Since they fear the Lord and they know their place, they also know the Lord and they know his character. And so verses 8 through, 11, through a 10 are all about stressing an awareness that the Lord's anger with his people is passing. We are told in the New Testament to receive discipline as sons who are beloved. The Lord's anger is passing. So we can have hope. And second, God's power to and for his people is promised. And both of those points, that his anger does not go on forever and that his power to his people is promised, both of these come from the Lord's hesed, the Lord's faithfulness, his loving kindness to his covenant and those who are in. And because of the certainty and surety of this covenant, this inviolable covenantal union with, between God and his people, we have the absolute ground of confidence as we endure a world of hardship, as we see and as we are dismayed by all of the wickedness going on around us, as we see the suffering, as we see the exploitation, as we see all of the offenses of the wicked, as we ourselves know that the things we experience are rightly, truly only the just consequence of our own sinfulness, we can nonetheless have hope that the Lord will not cast us off, that the Lord will hear our prayers, that the Lord will show up and vindicate because he is committed inviolably to his people by covenant. And that covenant is, of course, the one wrought by his son, signed, sealed, and delivered, confirmed 
in his body and in his blood. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to set you free, to reconcile you to the Father. And he instituted this covenant that everyone in him truly has been received and accepted by the Father. You are a beloved, precious child of God if you are in Christ. And so, whatever may come, whatever you may experience, don't lose heart. God has not abandoned you. Though you may feel like you're alone, God is with you. Be patient. Walk in faithfulness. Trust, even in the darkest hour, the Lord will not abandon you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this word. We ask that you would indeed give us the confidence to hold on even when things seem scary, even when things are very dangerous for us, even when we feel alone, even when we feel like all hope is gone, let us hope still. Thank you that you are committed to your covenant. And because of your said, you will not stay angry at us forever, but you will discipline us that we might become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus who is indeed the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.